Has anybody here heard of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? Does that name ring a bell with anybody? Okay, he was a famous preacher in England in the 20th century. He came over here in 1967, and he was uh, lecturing at Westminster Theological Seminary, and he said this, Samuel Davies is the greatest preacher you have ever produced in this country. And he was talking about America. Now that's a pretty tall claim for somebody to make because we've had a lot of really good preachers here in the United States. But he said Samuel Davis is the greatest one. But the fact is that most people don't even know who he is. They've never heard his name. A lot of people who graduate from seminary still have never heard the name of Samuel Davies. So we want to get acquainted with this man today. I want to give you just a little bit of uh, a background of his life and then we're going to learn some lessons from his ministry. So the first thing, his birth, Samuel Davies was born in Pennsylvania on November 3rd, 1723. Now the Great Awakening took place in 1740. So he would have been 17 years old when the Great Awakening was happening here in America. He was the only son of a godly mother and Davies would write about his mother, I am a son of prayer like my namesake Samuel the prophet. And my mother called me Samuel because she said, I have asked him of the Lord. So evidently his mother either couldn't have children or had a difficult time conceiving. And so when she finally did have a son, she said, I'm going to name him Samuel because he's just like the Samuel of the Bible. Where Samuel's mother had to pray Hannah for a son. He was raised as a Baptist in his home. Uh, when he was 11 years old, his mother became a Presbyterian. They started to go to the Presbyterian church. And then we know very little about these early years of his childhood, but around 13 to 15 years old, he was converted. He came to Christ. Um, by the time he was 15 years old, he had assurance that he had passed from death to life. So it took him a couple of years to kind of walk and, and see whether he'd truly been converted or not. But at, by the time he was 15, he was sure that God had soundly converted him. Then he began to study for the ministry when he was 17 years old. He went to a place called Fag's Manor, and it was a uh, uh, sort of a very informal seminary there in Pennsylvania. The Reverend Samuel Blair was his professor, and so he began to study. He, he believed God was calling him into the ministry. Now, in the 1740s, the only lawful church in Virginia was the Church of England. So we, we can't understand this today because we've never had to go through a period of history when there was only one church that was authorized. But at that time, that's the way things were. If you were to go to England, they had one church. It was the Church of England. If you went to uh, France, you know, they would have one church. If you went to Scotland, it was the Presbyterian Church. It was called the Church State. And everybody in that particular region was a Presbyterian or was a Church of England. So in the 1740s in Virginia, what we had over in England was transferred over to the new colonies, the English colonies here. And so the only authorized church at all was the Church of England. The problem is the Church of England was dead and it was not evangelical and they weren't preaching the gospel and it was lifeless. And so when anyone truly came to Christ, they didn't want to go to the Church of England because they found no life in that church. And so they would just start meeting by themselves separately. They were called the dissenters. 
or if your church was not of the Church of England, it was a dissenting church. And interestingly, back then in Virginia, um, it was required by law that people would pay tithes to the clergy of the Church of England, even if you didn't go to the church or not. And you could actually even be fined if you did not go to that particular church, but you went to another one. Isn't that strange? You know, <laughs> go. this is just like a different world, but it was a different world back then. <clears throat> but that was, that was the life and the times in which he was growing up. Now, this is a, a, a great story. Back in Hanover County, uh, Virginia, in the early 1740s, about the year 1743, there were some people who got a hold of some old sermons by George Whitfield. So Whitfield was preaching in 1739 and someone had compiled his sermons into a volume and these people in Hanover County, about 50 miles away from Williamsburg where Whitfield had preached, somehow this volume of sermons had made its way to Hanover County. Somebody had a copy and a guy named Samuel Morris, let me make sure of the name, yeah, Samuel Morris started to read these sermons and he said, these things aren't being preached in the Church of England. I wonder why not. And he got a hold of some old books. Uh, Martin Luther's Commentary on Galatians and Romans. And Thomas Boston's uh, Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. And some of these Puritan works. They began to find these old books and start to read them. And people started to become converted just by the reading of these old sermons. <laughs> and these old books. And because there was no life in the Church of England, no one preaching the gospel, they decided they would just meet separately as a dissenting church. But they had nobody amongst their group that knew how to preach or was gifted in preaching. So Samuel Morris, every Sunday, would stand up and read one of these old sermons to the group that gathered. Well, it wasn't long until the authorities caught wind of the fact that these people were meeting and they weren't Church of England. And you can't do that back then. And so the governor required that they make a trip to where he was at and, and tell them of what persuasion they were, what church this renegade church was all about. So they were, this young, uh, small group of Christians were making this journey to present their case to the governor. And on the way, they in, encountered this violent storm. And so they had to find shelter in a house that was along the way. They knocked on the door and asked, could we just stay here for a few hours until this storm blows over? And while they were there, they were looking on the bookshelves and they pulled down this old dusty volume and they started to read it. And they loved the contents of this book so much, they asked the owner, do you want this old book? If you don't want it, could we have it? And he says, oh, I don't want that old book. You can have it. So they took this book and they made their way to the governor and the governor asked them, well, what church are you of? What's your denomination? And at first they said, well, I suppose we might be Lutherans because we like Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. But, um, but then they said, actually, on the way here, we found this old volume and it expresses exactly what our sentiments are. So they gave the, the, <laughs> the judge, the governor, this volume and he opens it up and he founds out that it was the Westminster Confession of Faith. And since he knew a little bit about uh, Presbyterianism, he said, oh, you're Presbyterians. Okay, now we had a name for them. But these, if you can just imagine the situation, there were no churches besides the Church of England. And this is the backwoods of Virginia. It's woods, it's like wilderness at that time. 
It's like the, the, the frontier. <laughs> so there are no other churches. It's very sparsely populated. Um, there's no other Christians of any other denomination other than the Church of England. And so these people had not a clue about any... All, the only thing they knew was what they had read in these old books and these old sermons about uh, biblical Christianity. And so now they know, oh, I, I guess we're Presbyterians, according to the governor. <laughs> so that's, they started to meet as a Presbyterian church. Um, in the year 1743, uh, a minister by the name of William Robinson, another Presbyterian, came through. He came to Samuel Morris's reading room, and by this time there were four of these reading rooms. People were being converted. There's a, a, a little awakening going on in Hanover County just by the reading of these sermons. And as more people were, were converted, they would ask him, could you come and read those sermons where we live? Because, you know, everyone spread out at that time. They can't all come together at the same place. So Samuel Morris would go here, and then there's another reading room over there that they'd, he'd loan his old books to them, and they would read. And People are starting to come to Christ. Well, in 1743, William Robinson came through Hanover County, and he stopped there at the reading room, and for four days he preached to the people. Uh, every day there was preaching. And this is what Samuel Morris records of those four days. He said, "'Tis hard for the liveliest imagination to form an image of the condition of the assembly on these glorious days of the Son of Man. Many that came through curiosity were pricked to the heart, and but few in the numerous assemblies on these four days appeared unaffected. They returned alarmed with apprehensions of their dangerous condition, convinced of their former entire ignorance of religion, and anxiously inquiring what they should do to be saved." And there is reason to believe there was as much good done by these four sermons as by all the sermons preached in these parts before or since. So, before this William Robinson left the people there, they were so happy that he had come and so grateful that they took up an offering. He, now he didn't ask for an offering, but all by themselves, they wanted to bless him. So, they gave him some money. It was a very generous gift. And he said, oh no, I can't accept this. So while he wasn't looking, they stuck it in his saddlebag. <laughs> and the next morning when he got up, he found this gift stuck in his saddlebag. And so he said, uh, well, you know, I, he didn't want to accept it, but he felt like he had to because they were being so gracious to him. And this is what he told the people. There is a young man of my acquaintance of promising talents and piety who is now studying with a view to the ministry. But his circumstances are embarrassing. He has not funds to support and carry him on without much difficulty. This money will relieve him. Can anybody guess who that young man might have been? Turns out to be Samuel Davies, who is trying to study for the ministry, but didn't have the money to be able to put himself through school. And so the very money that came from this Hanover County uh, was given to Samuel Davies to prepare himself for the ministry. And in God's providence, Samuel Davies was actually sent back to that very spot Hanover County, and he became the pastor in that place. So he was ordained as an evangelist originally to Virginia. Um, his first tour, he went to Hanover County, but then because there were so many people without the gospel, he felt he, he couldn't stay in one spot because there were no evangelical churches. So he would just make these circuits. He would travel and he would preach wherever he could find people to try to bring the gospel to them. So the first tour was a 60-mile tour, lasted him six months, 
And when he finally got back home, now he's left his wife at this time, and he's been gone for six months on this evangelistic preaching tour in Virginia. He comes back home to Pennsylvania, and his wife, who's pregnant, is dying. He got home just in time to witness her death, and of course the unborn child died as well. And this is what he wrote in his journal. After I returned from Virginia, I spent near a year under melancholy and consumptive languishments expecting death. Now, we don't talk like this anymore. Does anyone know what melancholy is? Depression. Yeah, it's depression. And consumptive languishments? Lethargy. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually know what those are. Consumptive languishments. But... It, yeah, it's probably lethargy. He has no reason to live. He's so depressed because his wife and his child are gone. So he was overcome with grief. His physical constitution was weakened even further. He was never a really strong, robust person, real healthy. So now he's even more sickly. And one of his friends wrote, Finding himself upon the borders of the grave, and without any hopes of a recovery, he determined to spend the little remains of an almost exhausted life as he apprehended it in endeavoring to advance his master's glory in the good of souls. And as he told me, he preached in the day and had his hectic by night and to such a degree as to be sometimes delirious. So a hectic is some kind of a disease that he was battling. So he felt he wasn't going to live very much longer. He might as well go out in a flame. So he said, I'll just give myself completely to preaching the gospel to these lost people. And if I perish, I perish. So he would be preaching during the day and at night he would be suffering delirium. And that's how it went for quite a while. Eventually, he was asked by the people of Hanover County if he would come and be their pastor. And that happened in 1748. So he's 25 years old at this period. Um, 150 different heads of households signed a letter asking him if he would come to be the preacher there in Hanover County. And this is what he wrote. I put my life in my hand and determined to accept their call hoping I might live to prepare the way for some more useful successor and willing to expire under the fatigue of duty rather than involuntary negligence. So he thoroughly believed he was going to die by going to be a pastor, but he believed this was God's will. Um, they constructed a meeting house. This meeting house, it says it was plain and unpretending, just a wooden building. It could contain about 500 people jam full. You've got to remember, you know, these little villages and towns have a couple hundred people at most. So, it was <laughs> to, to actually ever get uh, an assembly of 500 people in the backwoods of Virginia at this time would be a miracle. But that's exactly what took place because God's Spirit came down and times of refreshing happened. Soon he was traveling and preaching at eight different preaching houses. And he had to do this because the people were without the gospel and there was no other churches and no other preachers and so he had to try to do what he could in every place that he could. So sometimes he would travel 500 miles in two months. Of course, this was on horseback. He would be preaching 40 different times in two months. Okay, so two months is 60 days. A sermon every day or every other day. So he's preaching almost every day at this time. Um, in the first three years of his ministry, beginning in 1748, over 300 people united with the church there in Hanover. And they were admitted to the Lord's table. 
Many other people would come to listen, but they, they weren't counted as among the 300 because uh, they weren't admitted to the Lord's table because they didn't actually join the church's members. This is what a frequent visitor to Hanover wrote at this particular time. He says, When I go amongst Mr. Davies' people, religion seems to flourish. It is like the suburbs of heaven. And in a later... In a, a letter to a friend in 1749, Jonathan Edwards wrote, and I'm sure most everyone's heard that name, Jonathan Edwards. He wrote in 1749, I heard lately a credible account of a remarkable work of conviction and conversion among whites and Negroes at Hanover, Virginia, under the ministry of Mr. Davies, who has lately settled there and has the character of a very ingenious and pious young man. And he was a young man. He started his ministry there at 25 years of age. He left at about the age of 35. So between 25 and 35 years of age, he's pouring out his life, not only in the one congregation of Hanover, but eight different congregations, traveling extensively, doing everything he can to bring the gospel to the people in this area. <coughs> okay, his remarriage. Remember that his wife early on had died and now he remarries a woman named Jane Holt who begins to assist him in all of his labors. And it was very providential that he would find this particular woman to remarry because her father was the ex-mayor of Williamsburg, Virginia. And now remember at this time that you had to have some political ends if you were going to get a license from the governor to be able to have... Um, to, to preach at various places. You couldn't just start preaching anywhere. You'd get arrested and thrown in jail or fined or something if you did that. You had to go to the governor and solicit him to get a license because you were a dissenting church and depending on whether he liked you or not or whether thought you thought you'd stir up trouble, he may or may not give you a license to preach. Well, Jane Holt, her father was the ex-mayor. He had connections to the governor and because of that, this providential relationship, he was able to get these licenses in eight different places so that he could do these preaching stents. This is what the Anglican Commissary of Virginia wrote to the Bishop of London. Anglican is another name for the Church of England. So this is the, uh, the minister of the Church of England there in Virginia. He's writing to the Bishop of London. He says, since Mr. Davies has been allowed to officiate in so many places, there has been a great defection from our religious assemblies. The generality of his followers, I believe, were born and bred in our communion. And do you know what he's saying? People. Yeah, he's saying so many people are leaving the Church of England and they're, they're going to hear him preach. <laughs> they were born and bred in the Church of England, but they're all flocking and they're leaving. That's the Spirit of God came down and nominal Christians are being converted by the droves and they're sitting under the, the preaching ministry of this evangelical preacher. <clears throat> now, Jane Holt, uh, Samuel Davies' wife, had a brother named Jane... John Holt, excuse me, and he was the publisher of the Virginia Gazette, a newspaper. And this was another providential arrangement in, in God's sovereignty. Um, so he had a brother-in-law who could print his sermons. If it wasn't for this brother-in-law, we may not have his sermons today. And in fact, you can go online, and if you have a tablet or whatever, you can just download these sermons and read them if you want to today. And I would encourage you to do that. They're very, very edifying. But that's how this happened. That's how his sermons were preserved. Um, now, in the year 1753, he ends up taking a trip to England. And the reason is because 
uh, they're wanting to start a college, the College of New Jersey, and this college needs funding, <clears throat> both to erect um, a building, to actually train these new preachers, and also to pay for the seminary professors. And so Samuel Davies, along with a guy named Gilbert Tennant, take a year and a half long trip to England to ask people if they would be willing to give them funds for the erection of this new college, the College of New Jersey. <clears throat> Has anybody ever heard of Reverend uh, Gilbert Tennant before? Okay. He was a major player in the Great Awakening. And if we ever do more of these biographical sketches, maybe we'll take one and we'll talk about Gilbert Tennant. He's a really interesting man. He and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards were the major figures that spearheaded the whole Great Awakening. I shouldn't say spearheaded because really nobody spearheads these things. The Holy Spirit does it. But they were the ones that God was using in dramatic ways. <clears throat> anyway, so they went to England. They were very successful. They collected about 4,000 English pounds. And I couldn't tell you how much that is in dollars. But it evidently it was a lot of money. They were successful at raising money and support. The strongest supporters were George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley and the churches that they ministered to regularly. But while he was there, he was preaching all the time in various churches and chapels. And news about him finally reached the king, King George II, that a dissenting minister, remember that he's not a Church of England minister. He's a dissenting minister, but he's very, very popular. Crowds are flocking to hear him preach. And so this king requests that he would come and preach before the royal court. So they convene a, a chapel of the royal persons there in, in the um, palace. And Davies comes and he preaches. And he Davies, while he's preaching, he notices that the king is talking to someone. And so he stops and he just waits quietly. He looks directly at the king. And then he says this, When the lion roars, the beasts of the forest all tremble. And when King Jesus speaks, the princes of the earth should keep silence. <laughs> this guy was bold. He was bold. <laughs> and now he, afterwards, he found out that the king was simply explaining to someone next to him that he was astonished at the eloquence and the passion of this preacher. He wasn't doing this, you know, chit-chatting with somebody. He was astonished at the sermon that was being delivered. Um, so anyway, Davies returns from this trip to England. He again labors amongst his people there in Hanover County until he became so poor in health that he couldn't continue. Eventually, in 1759, now remember he was born in 1723, so that would be 36 years of age, he was asked if he would become the president of the College of New Jersey. Uh, Jonathan Edwards had been the president for six weeks. He had come to the College of New Jersey to be the president, but he received a smallpox inoculation. And back then, this was a new thing. They were just trying it out. And instead of being inoculated against smallpox, he got smallpox and he died. Yeah, Edwards died within six weeks. And so they had no president. And so as they looked around for another president, they couldn't think of someone better suited than Samuel Davies, whom the Holy Spirit had visited in such a miraculous way in his work there in the backwoods of Virginia. And they asked him and he said, no, I really don't want to do that. I love being a pastor here in Virginia. 
Well, they came back a second time and they asked him. And he declined a second time. No, I really don't want to be the president. Well, they wouldn't take no for an answer. They came back a third time. And so finally, he, he went to the Synod of New York. He submitted it to the highest channels within Presbyterianism, the Synod of New York, and they asked them what their judgment should be. Should he take this position or not? And they said, yes, we believe that you should take that position. So he didn't want to do it. Sometimes we think, well, you know, I'll know God's will because it'll be what I want to do. Well, not always. Sometimes God's will is that you do something you don't, your flesh doesn't want to do. So he accepted the position in 1759. He was there for a year and a half, and then he died in 1761. And remarkably, he preached his own funeral sermon. Because on January 1st, 1761, he preached a sermon from Jeremiah 28:16, and this is the text. This year thou shalt die. <laughs> and in that sermon, this is what he said. Therefore let each of us, for we know not when the lot may fall, realize this possibility, this alarming probability, this year I may die. And little did he know that in, within one month he would be dead. He was weak and sickly most of his life. He literally wore his body out with his incessant labors. And that's, you can say the same thing of most of the people that you would read about at that time. Uh, Whitfield, Wesley. Uh, th these guys were incessant in their labors. You know, just tireless when it came to the ministry God had given them. The only words that were recorded at his death are the words of his mother. And she, remember that she was the mother of one son. There is the son of my prayers and my hopes, my only son, my only earthly supporter, but there is the will of God, and I am satisfied. He had three sons and two daughters, and sadly only one of his children embraced the Christian faith as an adult. Isn't that sad for someone who, who was so passionate about the Christian faith, but it just shows you we can't control whether our own children are converted. That's it's a work of the Spirit of God. He, during his long life, he longed to be useful in the church, but instead he found himself in this rural area, sparsely populated in the backwoods of Virginia. However, after he died, his sermons were printed and distributed, and for 100 years they were widely read, not only in America, but also over in England. So he became even more famous after his death than during his life. So that's, that's a little bit of his life. Let me share some lessons from his life. Number one, he possessed a burning zeal for the salvation of souls. And I'm going to just, in this section, I'm going to be doing a lot of reading. I'm going to read things that he wrote or things that he preached in his sermons. Some people were suggesting that he was primarily interested in building dissent from the Church of England. In other words, he wanted to steal people away from the Church of England and start a new church and a new denomination. And so he wrote to the Bishop of London. And in his letter, this is what he said. And this is a long one, so try to hang with me on this. He says, For my further vindications, my Lord, I beg leave to declare that in all the sermons I have preached in Virginia, I have not wasted one minute in exclaiming or reasoning against the peculiarities of the established church, that is the Church of England, nor so much assigned the reasons of my own nonconformity, 
I have not exhausted my zeal in railing against the established clergy, in exposing their imperfections, or in depreciating their characters. No, my Lord, I have matters of infinitely greater importance to exert my zeal and spend my time and strength upon, to preach repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, to alarm secure impenitence, to reform the profligate, to undeceive the hypocrite, to raise up the hands that hang down. These are the ends I pursue, and if ever I divert from these to ceremonial trifles, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth." I made no effort to win over any true Christian from the Church of England, and I would rather that men were made members of the Church Triumphant and the Regions of Bliss by the preaching of a minister of the Church of England than that they should remain unconverted in a Presbyterian church. Did you hear that? He doesn't care if they're Church of England or Presbyterian. He just wants to make sure they're, they're saved and they're going to heaven. But it is my distress that the clergy of Virginia did nothing to prepare men for eternity. I find that the generality of them, as far as can be discovered by their common conduct and public ministrations, are stupidly serene and unconcerned, as though their hearers were crowding to heaven, and there is little or no danger that they address themselves to perishing multitudes in cold blood, and do not represent their miserable condition in all its horrors. Do not alarm them with solemn, pathetic, affectionate warnings and expostulations expostulate with them with all the authority, tenderness, and pungency of the ambassadors of Christ to a dying world. I find that their common conversation has little or no savor of living religion, that instead of intense application to study or teaching their parishioners from house to house, they waste their time in idle visits, trifling conversations, and slothful ease. The plain truth is, a general reformation must be promoted in this colony by some means or other, or multitudes are eternally undone. And I see, alas, what little ground to hope for it from the generality of the clergy here till they be happily changed themselves. You hear what he's saying? The clergy of the Church of England were unconverted, in, in his opinion. This is not owing to their being of the Church of England, as I observed before, for were they in the Presbyterian Church or any other, I should have no more hopes of their success. But it is owing to their manner of preaching and behavior. This thought, my Lord, is so far from being agreeable to me that at times it racks me with agonies of compassion and zeal intermingled. And could I entertain that unlimited charity which lulls so many of my neighbors to their serene stupidity, it would secure me from many a melancholy hour and make my life below a kind of anticipation of heaven. I can boast of no high attainments, my Lord. I am as mean and insignificant a creature as your Lordship can well conceive me to be. But I dare profess that I cannot be an unconcerned spectator of the ruin of my dear fellow mortals. I dare avow my heart is sometimes set upon nothing more than to snatch the brands out of the burning before they catch fire and burn unquenchably. Hence, my Lord, it is that I consume my strength and life in such great fatigues in this jangling, ungrateful colony. Are you able to follow that? It's, I know it's written in different style. But basically what you catch here is his, the spirit, the zeal for the salvation of people. And, and it doesn't matter to him whether they're going to church or not. If they're not saved, they're not saved. And he, he's just overcome uh, with concern for people's salvation. This is what he says in one of his sermons. He's appealing now to the people he's speaking to. Yes, sinners... Have you ever heard a preacher today address his people? He's talking to his sinners. 
That's the way that was common in the old days. Spurgeon would always say, he'd, he'd talk to people, sinners, listen now. Anyway, this is how he starts. Yes, sinners, God forbid that I should cease to pray for you and pity you. While my tongue is capable of pronouncing a word, and you think it worth your while to hear me, I will send the calls of the gospel after you. And if you perish after all, you shall drop into hell with the offers of heaven in your ears. Fain would I clear myself and say, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. But alas, my heart recoils and fails. I have no doubt at all, but the gospel I have preached to you is indeed the gospel of Christ, and I cheerfully venture my own soul upon it. But in dispensing it among you, I am conscious of so much weakness, coldness, and unskillfulness that I am at times shocked at myself, lest I should be accessory to your ruin. However, this is certain. Great guilt will fall somewhere. I desire to take my own share of shame and guilt upon myself and to humble myself for it before God. And I pray you do the same. Oh, humble yourselves before God for your past conduct and prepare, prepare to meet Him in the midst of a burning world. And then he says, Or if you continue obstinately impenitent still, prepare to make your defense against your poor minister there when he will be obliged to appear as a swift witness against you and say, Lord, I can appeal to thyself that I warn them to prepare for this day though with so many guilty infirmities as nothing but thy mercy can forgive, but they would not regard my warnings, though given in thine awful name and sometimes enforced with my own compassionate tears. There, sirs, at the supreme tribunal, prepare to meet me, and thither I dare appeal for the truth and importance of the things I have inculcated upon you. So, you, you catch his heart for the people. Prepare to meet your God. And when you stand before God, you can't bear witness that I didn't tell you of the gospel and told you to flee from the wrath to come. So this is one thing I think that we can learn from his life. is an excellent example for us. None of us here, I think, have that kind of burning passion for the lost. And we should pray. That should be one of the things we pray for today, that God will increase our passion for the salvation of other souls. Okay, second thing, second lesson. He possessed a heightened sense of personal unworthiness. In 1757, <clears throat> he wrote to a friend, Formerly I have wished to live longer that I might be better prepared for heaven. But this consideration had very, very little weight with me, and that for a very unusual reason, which was this. After a long trial, I found this world a place so unfriendly to the growth of everything divine and heavenly that I was afraid if I should live any longer, I should be no better fitted for heaven than I am. You catch his drift? <laughs> he, he's saying, I used to want to live a long time, but I don't anymore because I, I don't really perceive that I'm making that many advances in my Christian life. Indeed, I have hardly any hopes of ever making any great attainments in holiness while in this world, though I should be doomed to stay in it as long as Methuselah. I see other Christians indeed around me make some progress, though they go on with but a snail-like motion. But when I consider that I set out about 12 years old, so he traces the beginning of his Christian life to when he was 12. When I consider that I set out about 12 years old, and what sanguine hopes I then had of my future progress, and yet that I have been almost at a stand ever since, I'm quite discouraged. Oh, my good master, 
If I may dare call thee so, I am afraid I shall never serve thee much better on this side the regions of perfection. The thought grieves me. It breaks my heart, but I can hardly hope better. But if I have the least spark of true piety in my breast, I shall not always labor under this complaint. No, my Lord, I shall yet serve thee, serve thee through my immortal duration with the activity, the fervor, the perfection of the rapt seraph that adores and burns. So he was very, very aware of his sin, of his imperfections. In a sermon on Galatians 4.19, this is what he says to his congregation. He says, you seldom hear a sermon from me, but what fills me with shame and confusion in the review. And I almost cease to wonder that the gospel has so little success among you while managed by, by so unskillful a hand. In another letter, this is what he says, as for myself, I'm just striving not to live in vain. I entered the ministry with such a sense of my unfitness for it that I had no expectations of success. And a condescending God, oh, how condescending, has made me much more serviceable than I could hope. But alas, my brother, I have but little, very little true religion. My advancements in holiness are extremely small. I feel what I confess, and I'm sure it is true, and not the rant of excessive or affected humility. It is an easy thing to make a noise in the world, to flourish and harangue, to dazzle the crowd and set them all agape, but to deeply imbibe the spirit of Christianity, to maintain a secret walk with God, to be holy as He is holy. This is the labor. This is the work. I beg the assistance of your prayers in so grand and important an enterprise. The difficulty of the ministerial work seems to grow upon my hands. Perhaps once in three or four months I preach in some measure as I could wish. That is, I preach as in the sight of God, and as if I were to step from the pulpit to the supreme tribunal. I feel my subject. I melt into tears, or I shudder with horror when I denounce the terrors of the Lord. I glow, I soar in sacred ecstasies when the love of Jesus is my theme. And as Mr. Baxter was wont, that's Richard Baxter, a Puritan, was wont to express it, and lines more striking to me than all the fine poetry in the world, I preach as if never should preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. But alas, my spirits soon flag, my devotions languish, and my zeal cools. It is really an afflictive thought that I serve so good a master with so much inconstancy. But so it is, and my soul mourns upon that account. So he was a very humble man, very sensitive to his sin. He felt unworthy even to be a preacher of the gospel, and he felt his sermons were unworthy of the people he was preaching to. He says, once in every three or four months, maybe, I'll have a sermon where I felt I really felt and entered into the passion of the subject that I was preaching. So there's something in here for us as, as a church to learn, and that is to be humble men and to ask God to show us who we really are in His sight. You know, in, in the sight of an all-so-holy God, we, we look at Him and we look at ourselves and we'll feel the same way that Samuel Davies felt. Just unworthy. In a day and age, that might seem kind of, kind of strange, you know, to talk like this. But the, the, the reason it, it sounds strange to us is because we live in such a weird age. 
we live in an unbiblical age, a secular age, a psychological age. If you go back to an age where people were immersed in Scripture, they talked like that. They talked like Samuel Davies talked. Uh, a third lesson. He kept eternity always in his view. And this is another thing you'll, you'll learn by reading older preachers of the gospel. This is something that consumed them. Heaven and hell consumed them. They, they weren't taken up by the trifles of the day. <laughs> they were, uh, they knew people were entering into hell or heaven and they're dropping all the time. People are dying and they're going to eternity. And you know that this was on his mind because of the sermons that he preached. Now I downloaded his three volume of sermons and I just want to read to you the titles. Just the titles of those sermons. Here's one. A sermon on the new year from Jeremiah 28, 16. This year thou shalt die. He preached it to the students at the College of New Jersey because he wanted to awaken them to their carelessness and their insecurity and the fact that they were taking for granted that they were going to heaven when many of them were in a lost condition. So this is an awakening sermon. Here's another one. The doom of the incorrigible sinner. Proverbs 29.1 He that being often reproved hardened his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Another one. The vessels of mercy and the vessels of wrath delineated from Romans 9.22 and 23 which says the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared to glory. Another title. The rejection of gospel light the condemnation of men. <clears throat> Another one. The nature and danger of making light of Christ and salvation. Or the connection between present holiness and future happiness. Another title. Things unseen to be preferred to things seen. The general resurrection. The universal judgment. Saints saved with difficulty and the certain perdition of sinners. Indifference to life urged from its shortness and vanity. So you see from these titles, this consumed his thinking. He, he probably didn't take a lot of time to preach on other subjects uh, because he was so consumed with the idea that these people are perishing and need to come to Christ. And so he was really an evangelistic preacher, an evangelistic pastor. And the gospel was the main concern of his preaching. These are just a sampling. If you download the three volumes and just look through the titles, you see many more titles that convince you that this man was, was seized with the idea of eternity. In one of his sermons, he's addressing his people, and this is what he says. A creature treading every moment upon the slippery brink of the grave and ready every moment to shoot the gulf of eternity and launch away to some unknown coast ought always to stand in the posture of serious expectation, ought every day to be in his own mind taking leave of this world, breaking off the connection of his heart from it and preparing for his last remove into that world in which he must reside, not for a few months or years, as in this, but through a boundless everlasting duration. Yes, if eternity be a dream, and heaven and hell but majestic chimeras, or fairylands, if we were always to live in this world and had no concern with anything beyond it, if the joys of earth were the highest we could hope for, or its miseries the most terrible we could fear, then indeed we might take this world for our all and regard its affairs as the most important that our nature is capable of. In this present state our good and evil are blended. Our happiness has some bitter ingredients 
and our miseries have some agreeable mitigations. But in the eternal world, good and evil shall be entirely and forever separated. All will be pure, unmingled happiness or pure, unmingled misery. Often he would begin one of his sermons with a reference to the reality of death. In his sermon on Jeremiah 5.3, he starts his sermon by saying this, My fellow mortals, so I call you because mortality is the certain doom of us all. <laughs> you know, he didn't try to warm his, sub, his audience up with a joke or a story. He starts out by talking about the mortality and that death is coming. Prepare for it. These preachers were serious. Uh, you, you, you can read their sermons from beginning to end and you'll never find a joke. <laughs> they're not concerned about trying to entertain their congregations. They're, they're concerned about the salvation of the people listening to them. Which is a very, very good lesson for us to keep eternity always in our view. To live for eternity. To realize every person we see during a day is going to heaven or hell. Lord, what can I do? If anything, can I do something to impact that person for Christ? And then number four, Davies loved and labored for the Negroes. This is just a great little portion of his life that comes out when you read it. He was loved and he loved the Negro population in Virginia. He could number over 300 regular Negro hearers in the Virginia backwoods and over 150 who were admitted to the Lord's table. So not everybody that listened would be admitted to the Lord's table. Uh, some would come just to listen, but those that were examined by the, the uh, elders of a particular church and admitted into the membership of the church, then they would be admitted to the Lord's table. It says he would teach these poor slaves to read and to write, and then he'd give them books to read. And he would give them good books to read. In addition to the Bible, these are the kinds of books that he was just giving out to them. A Body of Divinity by Thomas Watson. Uh, these might not ring a bell with you, but these are famous Puritan pastors that lived in the 1600s. Another one, Human Nature in Its Fourfold State by another Puritan by the name of Thomas Boston. Uh, Galatians by Martin Luther, a commentary on the book of Galatians. The works of John Flavel, who was another p great Puritan author. An Alarm to the Unconverted by Joseph Alleen. Kelly and Sean and I actually read that book together and discussed it. A Call to the Unconverted and the Saints' Everlasting Rest by the Puritan Richard Baxter. These are among the best of the Puritan books you can get. And so he would get these books, he would obtain them, People in England would would selflessly send him these books to America and he'd just distribute them to the Negroes that were learning to read. He wrote in a letter to a friend that the slaves, wherever they could get an hour's leisure from their masters, would hurry away to my house. So you can imagine it. You know, Master, can I have an hour's reprieve? And he'd say, sure, go ahead, you worked hard today. They would run on over to Samuel Davies' house because they loved to be around their pastor. They were especially gifted at turning the truth Davies taught them into songs. This is what Davies wrote. Sundry of them have lodged all night in my kitchen, and sometimes when I waked about two or three o'clock in the morning, a torrent of sacred harmony poured into my chamber and carried my mind away to heaven. In this seraphic exercise, some of them spent almost the whole night. 
So they would take the Bible or take these good books and they would turn them into songs and just sing throughout the night in his kitchen <laughs> as he's trying to sleep in the other room. You can just get the picture in your mind of what's going on here. In a letter of 1755, he wrote of the Negroes who attended his sermons. The number of those who attend my ministry at particular times is uncertain, but generally about 300 who give a stated attendance. And never have I been so struck with the appearance of an assembly as when I have glanced my eye to that part of the meeting house where they usually sit adorned for so it has appeared to me with so many black countenances eagerly attentive to every word they hear and frequently bathed in tears a considerable number about a hundred have been baptized after a proper time for instruction and having given credible evidence not only of their acquaintance with the important doctrines of the Christian religion but also a deep sense of them upon their minds attested by a life of strict piety and holiness in other words, sound conversions are going forth amongst these Negro people. It's not, they, they did not know evangelism like we do today. No one had ever heard of raise your hand and you're, and you're saved. That's, that's a recent innovation in church history. These are people who you know that they're saved because their life changes and no other way. And he said that, that he could tell not only because they, they truly understood the, the deep, rich doctrines of the Christian faith, but because the sense of piety and there's another word we don't use, but it means devotion. Religious or spiritual devotion to Jesus Christ. So he, be, he takes first place in your life and you begin to live for him. So that's what he's noticing amongst these Negro people. I mean, to have your kitchen crowded with these folks that are singing all night long, something's going on in their heart, I would say. So these are the four lessons that I got from his life. A burning zeal for the salvation of souls a deep sense of personal unworthiness, a keeping of eternity always in his view, and a love and a labor for the poor and the downtrodden of his own particular times. And we ought to learn a lesson from, from these four things for our own life and for our church. How we ought to have a heart for the poor and the downtrodden. How we ought to have a passion and a burning zeal for the salvation of lost people. How we ought to have a sense of humility before God and unworthiness to even approach our great holy God and a keeping of eternity always in our mind and in our view.